Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So uh, minutes before we were going to go on the air, there were some technical problems. And I typed out to the producer, Betsy Kaplan, don't worry because I have the force. And she typed back, ha, exclamation point, as if I don't have the force. I actually do. I have the force. That wasn't a joke. I have the force. All right. So um, because I have the force, let me just quickly tell you two quick stories before we get to our point. These lead up to our point. One of them is I saw, this weekend I saw the movie uh, First Reformed, which is uh, which stars Ethan Hawke as a minister <clears throat> who, on the one hand, has become consumed with despair, understandably, uh, about climate change and attendant environmental woes. And that despair is closely matched with um, toxic conditions that exist in his own body and toxic conditions that exist in his own soul. And all of those things, plus some other occasions for despair, begin to function as mirrors for each other. Um, all, the, all the ways in which he's drifting downward, the planet is drifting downward, um, the, everything seems to be pointed into a nosedive from which there can be no actual uh, recovery. Um, it all begins to sort of compound. And, and I think it's actually a pretty good statement uh, about uh, how a lot of people feel right now. And in fact, well, I actually, I'll skip my second story. Um, before I'd seen the movie, I had read this article in Slate. And on Friday, Betsy Kaplan and I began talking about it. And, and we both agreed that a lot of people are feeling these days. I mean, not everybody, obviously. A lot of people are really happy with the direction things are going in. But those of us who worry about the environment are very worried about permanent, irreparable damage to the environment now, something that will be bequeathing to our children and our children's children and their children, if, there are, if they can even be around, uh, something that is so badly broken that it cannot easily be fixed. And then those things are starting to also have kind of a, a hall of mirrors uh, in the Supreme Court uh, at the American uh, and Mexico Mexican border. Um, you know, as we look around in the actual corruption that seems rife uh, in, in the White House. And so I had read this piece by Lily Loofborough in Slate uh, called The America We Thought We Knew is gone. Um, and it did, I think, begin to sort of condense uh, like gas into water. Um, a lot of feelings that I was having, too, as though these problems have reached some kind of tipping point where they're not going to be easy to fix. We're not going to just win a midterm election. Uh, and I say we. Uh, the Democrats are not going to win a midterm election uh, and, and fix it. Um, and it's possible that even a change of power in, in 2020 won't, won't fix it, um, that there are things that are irreparably wrong or, or at least long-lastingly wrong. So this is kind of a conversation a little bit today about American sadness, uh, at least a sadness in one segment of, of America. And I'm going to talk to Lily here at the beginning, uh, and then uh, for the final two segments, I'm going to invite you to call in, as we often do on Mondays and 
have a conversation with me. Uh, I won't give out the number yet. It's too soon for you to call in. Instead, I'm going to uh, further introduce the woman I've been referring to. Lily Lufborough uh, writes about culture, gender, and politics for Slate. She's written for several other publications, New York Times uh, Magazine, Guardian, Los Angeles Review of Books. Uh, you get the idea. She's an accomplished journalist. And in her essay, which I really do direct your attention to, um, The America We Thought We Knew uh, is Gone, seems to be a good starting place uh, for our conversation today. So uh, first of all, Lily, welcome to our show. Thank you. Um, maybe just let's just start with that, you know, I mean, w- with the notion that that just seeps into your entire essay. Uh, and it's one of demoralization and, and maybe one that you maybe that's a feeling that you weren't expecting to have. Uh, the American narrative, as you point out, is often one of disappointments followed by victories for both sides, right? There's uh, always kind of a, a, a thesis uh, and, and antithesis uh, back and forth, back and forth. And now there's a feeling like maybe one side has got the car kind of spinning its wheels in one position. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, I, I, that's a feeling that was, I think, really, uh, really coalesced with uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy's announcement that he was retiring um, at the end of July, because, of course, as I'm sure your listeners know, that means that we won't be able to have the midterm election affect uh, the outcome of that Supreme Court appointment, which in effect um, gives this administration the power to appoint two Supreme Court justices, uh, which very likely means the end of Roe versus Wade and likely signals the erosion of uh, a number of civil rights. Um, so it's that, that is that is damage that is not contingent on one election. That is damage that will last for decades. Right. And I mean, you could even say that there's sort of a a doubling down effect in the sense that um, conservatives and Republicans, they typically care more about Supreme Court uh, constitutions than Democrats do. In other words, uh, if you want to motivate Republicans at the time of an election, you you do talk about the Supreme Court and who's going to appoint to the Supreme Court. And it's not that the Democrats are deaf to this, but just even at the level of of polling and data, it's clear that you can motivate Republicans uh, about the Supreme Court. And, And maybe under the current circumstances, you can motivate Democrats, too. But, I mean, oddly enough, if you wanted to make the Supreme Court a big issue for the 2018 midterms, uh, that might be, in fact, to the advantage of the Republicans. What's your response to that? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think think that Justice Kennedy timed this uh, to give this administration and the Republicans maximal advantage, both going into the election and for the foreseeable future. Um, so that is certainly a distressing development and one that I think um, tarnishes a legacy that had at least some signs of um, of neutrality. And it would be one thing if um, if we could trust <laughs> that, that these appointments would actually take into account the view of the majority of America. Um, but it does not. This is a minority elected president, and um, abortion, for example, Roe versus Wade, is an issue that the vast majority of Americans support. They support the right of a woman to have an abortion, but that's not going to factor in um, to these uh, the decisions over whom 
Trump appoints. Uh, it doesn't look like anyway, and there's little reason to expect that to turn out any differently. I think, you know, one point that you make in your article is one that I've been feeling acutely for a long time. It it's kind of goes back to the notion of the Overton window, you know, in political science. There's this notion of the Overton window, which is the circumference of things that can be acceptably discussed and said. You know, there are things that we are capable of debating uh, each side of, and there are even maybe some closely held truths about which there is very little debate. And then there's like a whole bunch of things that you just kind of don't say. You know, there, there really can't be a debate about those. Although we started to feel in 2015, and 2016, is though that Overton window was expanding in a very unhealthy way. Uh, and, and things were being said. Well, you say in your essay, for example, this was already an unhealthy country in many ways, but at least lies were still resented. Now they're celebrated. Uh, I'm also going to play back to you uh, a clip that's very familiar to you. This is uh, Donald Trump at a MAGA uh, rally last week. I hate it. I meet these people. They call them the elite. These people... I look at him, I say, that's elite? We got more money, we got more brains, we got better houses, apartments, we got nicer boats, we're smarter than they are. And they say, the elite, we're the elite, you're the elite. We're the elite. So I said the other day, let's keep calling these people. And look, let's face it, they've been stone cold losers, the elite, the elite. So let's let them keep calling themselves the elite. But we're going to call ourselves, and remember, you are indeed, you work harder, but you are indeed smarter than them. Let's call ourselves from now on the super elite. We're the super elite. All right. For those of you listening unfamiliar with that clip, it might even be kind of hard to follow because of the way that he uses language. But he uses that term, the elite, which is ordinarily, particularly in the last election cycle, kind of a damning um, uh, term applied to uh, to Democrats uh, living on, on either coast. They're the elite. Uh, and, and he kind of twists it around and says that he actually resents them being called the elite. The elite, you know, even though that's not usually used in a particularly complimentary way, but he, he still resents them being called the elite. And then he says, we have more money, we, we're smarter, we have bigger boats, all this kind of stuff. And, and then he, he uh, arrogates the term super elite uh, to describe himself and his uh, supporters. Uh, Lily, I think this does kind of fit into that whole rubric of stuff you would never expect to hear uh, a politician say uh, in the pursuit of leadership of a democracy. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, you're, you know, so you're absolutely right. The elite label is something that Fox News cultivated as a kind of pejorative for Democrats and everyone else on the left. And even though it has no basis in reality, really, like it includes journalists who make $40,000 a year and are buried in student loans. It includes, you know, restaurant workers and adjunct professors who make $3,000 per course. But they use it because it inverts the terms of class warfare and it makes like the prosperous and safe and comfortable feel that they are the victims. And uh, I think that that's what, you know, I think that there are a lot of ways in which Trump's election has been narrated as um, a, quote, working class uprising. And it, that that's, that is not my view of it at all. I mean, a lot of studies have shown that, in fact, voters for Clinton were lower income. Um, but but this is this does feel like um, a sharpening of what has been called a revolt of the rich, you know, Um Trump has never really quite mastered dog whistles. He just kind of says the thing. Yeah. Uh, he hates that they're not calling him the elite, and and he but he's right. He is the elite, and so are his cronies. This is not really a partisan issue. Um, in fact, I mean, as as the, like the conservative Wall Street Journal reported today, 
he's taxing the free press with a newsprint tariff. I mean, the, the, you know, Trump's motives are not subtle and neither is, are his actions. Um, he called journalists the enemy of the people and enclosed them in pens at his rallies and ran away from them on video when they asked him if he had some words of comfort to offer after the recent shooting that cost five journalists their lives. And now he's taxing them, you know? So um, the problem with that, what I really see is that there's, there's just um, the rich have become, uh, I don't know. In 2012, there was a really interesting article in the American conservative, I hasten to add, mm. by a Republican U.S. congressional aide called Revolt of the Rich, where he says that the super rich have achieved escape velocity from the gravitational pull of the very society they rule over. They have seceded from America. And, he goes on to say, what I mean by secession is a withdrawal into enclaves, an internal immigration, whereby the rich disconnect themselves from the civic life of the nation and from any concern about its well-being except as a place to extract loot. Um, and I think that quote that you played really registers that intention and what that vision is of what civic life is and what America is for. Um, you write... Uh, I am sad above all because the damage being done now no longer feels like it can be stemmed, let alone reversed, with a single election. This will last decades. The downturns my generation has already weathered. The 2008 crisis that hinged on obscure derivatives traded by a privileged few, robbing wealth from millions, were only the beginning. Education is now a luxury. Pensions barely exist. Health care is under threat. Retirement is, to those my age, a cruel joke. We've been waiting for recovery, for relief, for some semblance of an American dream we can access. Um, let me just ask you this. Sometimes when we say something, when we get it down on paper or uh, on a computer screen or say it out loud, we feel better. Uh, are you as sad now as you were when you wrote this? Uh, I have, I, uh, there are alive vacillate quite a bit between, there, there is a, a there is a, a real anger that I think is, is, is perhaps coming. Um, <laughs> I'm not over the sadness yet. Um, but, uh, I think sadness turns into other things. I, the, the more that I think about this and I'm, so I'm 63, uh, and I sort of wonder what I'll see in what remains of my time as an American. And, and I do find myself thinking, I mean, reading your articles, and there have been other articles with similar themes and tones, a lot of them kind of clustered around the, the present moment. There's something about that Kennedy resignation and just some of the other stuff that was going on right around it um, that that made people, I think, think this way. But I also find myself wondering about the future and whether, in fact, what we're really going to see is the end of the old older paradigms. You know, I mean, we I, I've lived through like all kinds of stuff, like the late 60s, where you really felt as though America was in a kind of tumult, a kind of chaos where people could get hurt and it wasn't really a particularly safe country uh, for, for quite a while. And I, I've seen. Um, uh, America, as you say, uh, uh, occasionally fail or frequently fail to achieve its ideals or to live out uh, its core principles. Um, but you always could identify that as a failure or uh, uh, um, an inability to be everything that we say we want to be. And this does feel like a slightly different moment. I find myself wondering, and I apologize for babbling, um, if we'll just see, I don't know, 
you know, California will be a, diff- a separate country in 10 years or uh, the, the backlash against what we're seeing now will lead to something other than a democracy, something in which a millennial generation much more comfortable, I think, with socialism uh, than any of its predecessors uh, may institute that. Or on the dark side, uh, a continuation of the regime that we have now in a way that also doesn't really feel terribly like elective democracy. So now that I'm done babbling, you can respond to that. But I sort of feel I, I wonder if we're just going to see the normal rise and fall of dualistic electoral politics or if we're headed for something different. I think, yeah, I agree with you. And I, I, I wish I knew and I don't. I, I do think that um, the extent to which, you know, quote unquote norms that everyone has agonized over so much um, have have been eroded, I think, past the point of, of no return. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell <laughs> refusing to consider Merrick Garland and allow that vote to happen was the beginning of the end. And it is attributable to him, um, the fact that, that, that norms are unlikely to um, to endure, um, I think, moving forward. And that's, you know, I, what you're saying about the Overton window is absolutely right. I think, um, you know, I wrote, I wrote after the election that we like, there had been this, this expectation of like smashing the glass ceiling. And instead, what I think we smashed was the Overton window. I think we're in a moment where every option is thinkable. Um, women are, are making headway in the conversation about what they deserve in the workplace, what respect they deserve, how their careers have been negatively impacted by sexual harassment and assault. And at the same time, we have a president who clearly uh, believes in a 1950s version of the family, even though he himself can't hold himself to that standard. Um, So it's very hard to say what will happen. Um, And I don't know that adhering to norms that one side no longer respects is either strategically or or pragmatically feasible at this point. So I, I I hear what you're saying, and I, that seems likely to me. Um, let's uh, since you said that, though, that's a nice segue to, uh, and there are an awful lot of people talking about your article over the weekend and sharing it on social media. Another article that's really started to be shared in, in today, in particular, is one by Amanda Ripley. We've both read it. It's called "Complicated: Complicating the Narratives: The Whole Story." We'll make sure we share it on the web page for this particular show. But um, her her argument is maybe a little bit more hopeful. She's she really went uh, and visited with people who specialize in difficult conversations, uh, people who specialize in creating dialogue where none exists, um, and who specialize in understanding our our, our irrationality uh, in situations where we're kind of um, poised against what we perceive as somebody with a completely different value set, uh, one that results, as she says, in a kind of hypervigilance where we're, each side is very quick to watch for offenses from the other side and interpret everything as an attack or an assault that needs to be parried or countermanded. So, um, but she sort of looked at all that and, and, you know, found some little rays of light in there about what it might take to get us all talking uh, and, be, and communicating more effectively. What, what did you make of her, her central premise? I, uh, I agree 100 percent with her central premise. And, um, you know, it, it's funny. I, I've worked for many years as, as an interpreter, um, Spanish, English. And it, so it has been my job for a long time to kind of look for the places where miscommunication is happening, and not always just at the level of language, but also at the level of cultural assumptions, you know. So I I respect that mission hugely, and I think she's right, and I think that's important, and I think we're singularly bad about it right now. Um, I I will say that uh, my 
my current read signals my own failure uh, to translate. Um, I, I was raised very conservative, and so I'm not unfamiliar with uh, a lot of the worldviews that I think shape, you know, much of what Trump supporters believe. Um, and I think what alarms me is that I'm failing to find common ground, even with assumptions that I thought that I was raised sharing as a conservative child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that, to me, has been very destabilizing. Um, but, I, I mean, I... I I am hopeful that she's right, and I'm hopeful that that some people will be reachable. I don't think that the administration is, and my my concern is that um, we are we are really approaching kind of oligarchic status between Citizens United, which allows kind of the the uninterrupted flow of corporate money to govern elections. Um, There, there. The influence of the people on a one-on-one basis has been eroded so systematically and so successfully that I am not sure whether that stranglehold can be broken. Um, I I sincerely hope that it can. All right. Well, on that semi-uplifting note, uh, we're going to end this segment and thank Lily Lufborough, who writes about uh, culture, gender, and politics for Slate. Uh, You should read her article, The America We Thought We Knew uh, Is Gone. When we come back, I'm going to invite you to call in. In fact, you can do it right now, 860-275-7266, if you have a reaction to what you've just heard, 860-275-7266. I'm singing at a funeral tomorrow For a kid a year older than me And I've been talking to his dad It makes me so sad when I think too much about it I can't breathe And I have this dream where I'm screaming All right, so the rest of the show is just you and me. You're on the phones. I'm here. Uh, Our number is 860-275-7266. Some people are already calling in. I'm just going to talk a little bit just so you have uh, some time to call up and get on the board. A couple of things. So uh, I have a 28-year-old son. uh, And I think for me and for producer Betsy Kaplan, a lot of the thinking about this show is about our kids uh, and about the world we're bequeathing to them. Uh, in this movie, first uh, reformed at one point, um, the the character played by Ethan Hawke, this minister, takes down whatever was on that sort of, you know, lettered press board thing that's outside churches that say what says what the sermon is or what the next big event is or something like that. And um, he replaces it with, will God forgive us? Uh, and there do seem to be so many things wrong right now. Some of them are politically wrong. Some of them are environmentally wrong. Uh, and, and I don't know how I would feel if I were a 28-year-old person right now. I'd feel angry and I'd feel demoralized. Uh, and I'd feel as though I'm being handed a series of problems I didn't create uh, and uh, asked to solve them. Uh, and I wouldn't be terribly interested, I don't think, in the rules that other people, that older people, gave me for solving them. I, I, uh, uh, I, I think I would be probably about as outraged as any currently outraged millennial. So it, that's a lot of sort of the incentive for this show, I think, is that we, we feel this way. We feel really terrible about the state of things, uh, both uh, uh, our potentially—and I guess the, when I say the state of things, uh, on the one hand, yes, 
climate change uh, and the environment. And then on the other hand, the potentially broken state of our democracy. And I do feel as though, uh, and this point was, I thought, really ably made on the Slate Political Gab Fest last week with Emily Bazelon, John Dickinson, and David Plotz, where one of the things that they were saying is that you, you have a president who has arrived into office with an unprecedentedly expansive notion of executive power. Um, and, and you combine that with what Platts called a supine uh, leadership in Congress. I mean, ultimately, the Republicans in Congress, yes, there's a McCain there and a Lindsey Graham there and a Jeff Flake uh, once in a while. But by and large, the Republicans in Congress, rather than differentiating themselves uh, from, from Trump's expansive ideas about his own power and extreme views uh, about the course America should chart, uh, Republicans, the Republican majority in Congress has pretty much laid down alongside him uh, on this. Um, so you've got those two things. And then you add uh, the fact that he will now appoint his second Supreme Court justice and a court. And Dickinson and Plotz, I think, well, like all three of them made this point, but a court that was formerly perceived. The Supreme Court actually usually does pretty well in approval uh, rating polls because even though it's had a very conservative tilt in the John Roberts era, it's seen as a counterweight for extremism on both sides. But but one senses that if uh, Donald Trump does what we think he will do, uh, which is to appoint the kind of Supreme Court justice he has consistently said that he would uh, appoint, uh, appoint uh, someone who will track far to the right uh, of Kennedy, um, we're going to have a third branch of government that in a way uh, is calcified uh, into a state of conservatism that it hasn't pre previously had. So you really do have and I think it was John Dickinson who used this phrase, just this expression of power and unity that very few presidents, perhaps no presidents, maybe, maybe you could go back to FDR, uh, but a sense of power and unity um, connected to, once again, this very expansive and unprecedented notion of his own presidential power um, and, and very few checks on that. You know, very few ways in which anybody could call him to account or say, no, this isn't really the way things are. So, you know, when people, when I say people are sad, demoralized, worried, fearful, um, that's, at least in the political sense, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, here's uh, Brandon in Branford. Hi, Brandon, you're on the air. Hi, Colin, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I wanted to ask about, what you were just talking about with the Supreme Court, I'm, I am really worried, too, about all these rulings, especially about the unions. I'm going to be a teacher starting in September. Um, but when it comes to Roe v. Wade, I, I, don't, I want to know what your opinion is. I don't know if I see John Roberts specifically voting to get rid of Roe v. Wade. I don't know if he's said things in the past, but just based on his rulings on some other cases like the ACA uh, rulings late uh, in the past few years. I don't know if he, I see him doing that. I want to know what your opinion is. Uh, I wish we had, uh, first of all, Brandon, uh, Brandon, thank you very much for your call and good luck with your uh, new career. Um, I wish we had somebody like Emily Bazelon, who's an occasional guest on this show with us right now. She would be a much better parser of the some, somewhat sphinx-like countenance of John Roberts than I could ever be. I mean, Roberts seems to have a whole bunch of different, somewhat competing allegiances. Um, one of those allegiances is to um, his own legacy. And I don't think that he would like the notion that he presided over an extremist court. 
So that would sort of argue uh, uh, in the direction that uh, Brandon is going. That you know, you you look at at um, Roberts and when it has become necessary. I think he is. I mean, he might become the new William Kennedy of his own court, um, rather than have a court that was really known, as I say, for a, for an extremist point of view. We'll see. Um, because there are obviously an awful lot of other things in John. I mean, he wasn't appointed to be that person back in the day. Uh, and ideologically, he's not, I don't think, really a centrist. Uh, I think he tracks more to the right. But, you know, the other thing is Supreme Court justices change over time. You know, uh, I mean, Harry Blackman, ultimately one of the most liberal Supreme Court justices ever, was a Nixon uh, appointee. Uh, David Souter was appointed by uh, the by Bush 40 through 41. Um, so you, you never entirely know what any Supreme Court justice, for all we know, five, six years from now, Neil Gorsuch could be moving in a more centrist direction. I kind of doubt that. <laughs> but um, you can't control for it all that well. And John Roberts might be the guy who moves a little bit. I mean, because he likes balance, I think. Uh, and maybe that's sort of what Brandon's referring to. All right, let's go to Mary in Hampton. My, our number, by the way, 860-275-7266. Mary, welcome to the conversation. Hi, Colin. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm very concerned about the Supreme Court along with so many other things that are happening in the country. But it seems to me that one of the things that comes to mind is that when I was a student in high school years and years ago, we were taught that uh, in civics class, I don't think they teach civics very much anymore in schools, we were taught that the three branches of government were meant to check and balance with one another. And in this country, and with the way the Supreme Court is likely to go, we won't have that check and balance. And Roe versus Wade is definitely of concern, but the larger concern is if we can recuperate as a country to a kind of stable, um, balanced position, we are totally uh, flowing or, or, or floating out of control. Um, the other comment that I have that I'd like to make is about the super elite. I teach, and one of the things uh, when I was teaching Greek art last semester, I told I talked a lot about the kinds of things that we got from the Greeks in terms of government. And oligarchy is a term that comes up during uh, the Greek Republic. And that's what we have now, the super elite, a very, very small group of people who seem to be running the country, um, is an oligarchy. We don't have a democracy. We have an oligarchy. And that's not unlike Putin's Russia at the moment. So these are things that that concerned me. And uh, more importantly, I, I'm a black American. I grew up, despite all the injustices that I've seen over the years directed at people of color, I've always maintained or hoped or believed somehow in the overall system of government of the United States and in the Constitution. And today, I, I feel that that is kind of a fraudulent document. Only those aspects, the Second Amendment, that certain people want to uphold, those are the ones that are, upheld, that are upheld. And everything else seems to be being flushed down the toilet of some sort. Um, I'm not as hopeful as you are. I think the wild card in all of this is the planet. The planet Earth cannot sustain the kind of injustices that we're applying to it. All right. Well, Mary, thanks so much for your phone call. Yeah, well, I'm hopeful most days. 
Although I will say that uh, one of the reasons we're doing this show in this way right now is I'm a little less hopeful now. I mean, for me, it wasn't even so much the Kennedy resignation uh, or retirement, but um, kind of an accumulation of stuff. Uh, and, and I mean, I've been uh, worried and depressed all along throughout 2015 and 2016. Um, and to me, you know, you use the term Mary uh, oligarchy. Another term that gets thrown around is kleptocracy. Uh, you know, uh, uh, a notion in which the notion of of a state in which stealing is uh, a virtue, uh, and and uh, or if not a virtue, uh, a tool to be effectively deployed. One of the things that has shocked me about this government is its rampant corruption. Um, whether we're talking about uh, Pruitt or, or Wilbur Ross or, or Jared Kushner or the president himself, who to this day, I mean, we have no idea where he gets money from. He won't disclose his tax returns. It is clear that he's on the payroll uh, of foreign powers. Um, just the fact that we, you know, I, I did grow up in a society that would push back against stuff like that. Uh, and like all those people, they still have their jobs. You know, they're still basically in place. Uh, and uh, it just doesn't seem to matter what comes out about them. Um, and that worries me. It worries me that we we don't have that. Uh, all right. Here's uh, Tony in Watertown. Hi, Tony. You're on the air. Oh, Tony went away. Okay, too bad. Uh, be patient. Be patient. I'll get to all of you, I swear. Um, all right. So let's try. And by the way, we do love to have a women call in. Uh, our number 860-275-7266. I see Monica from Weathersfield. By the way, I have to say, we have uh, our intern, Zandra Ellen, is, uh, is screening calls today, and she is amazing at that. Uh, I've put her to the test on a previous Monday, and uh, she's uh, she's up to it. So anyway, uh, you're in good hands when you call 860-275-7266. Here's Monica from Weathersfield. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um I just want to give a little perspective of someone who came to this country 20 years ago. I'm American citizen right now, and I just feel like this is not America that I came to. I don't feel what's going on right now in this country is not, I don't feel the freedom and, you know, what the America was, you know, a few years ago and what everybody wanted to live in and what's going on right now with the situation and President Trump. I'm really scared. I have little children also. I have a girl. And uh, I'm really uneasy right, un, uneasy right now with the way the things are going. And, um, you know, maybe most of the people who are born in this country, they don't realize, they don't know history too much. They don't know what the um, countries like Russia and, uh, co- you know, communist countries are doing, you know, what, what the governments are like. And maybe don't they don't realize what can happen here in this country with the way that Trump is uh, just running the country right now. Right. First of all, Monica, thank you so much for your call, even though it chills my heart to hear what you say uh, and to agree with what you say. Uh, thank you for making that call. Yeah. You know, th- I went back and I read something that I wrote in 2007 when I was really upset with the way the Bush administration had gravitated into the open use of torture uh, and into holding people without charges in cells in places like Guantanamo uh, and to the practice of rendition 
where people were captured and sent to black sites where they could be tortured and God knows what else. Um, and all those things seemed like such incredible departures. Not that I believed in a stainless America. I understand about the school for the, uh, the school of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia, where you know Latin American uh, death squads and and um, uh, Latin American military were brought up there up here to learn some of those techniques from us. Uh, I get that we're we're not virgins. But even so, in 2007, I felt like, wow, this I, I wrote this piece called The American Glow that I kind of remembered from my childhood and, and thought that it was really gone. But the argument then was there was a post 9-11 argument about Al Qaeda and related groups. And the central argument of the Bush Cheney Rumsfeld group was we're fighting monsters. So we have to act like monsters. It's okay just for now if we act like monsters because we're fighting monsters. I didn't happen to believe that, but that was their argument. I think Monica, to Monica's point these days, we're talking about people who are, we're not fighting monsters. We have people who are running away from monsters, people who are fleeing monsters in Honduras, El Salvador, uh, Guatemala. Sometimes those monsters are something that we had some connection to making. <laughs> and they're running away from those monsters, and we're acting like monsters towards them. That's the shift that I'm seeing now. Uh, it, it's no longer necessary to make the argument, oh, we're fighting monsters, so we have to be monsters. Now we're fighting the helpless, and still we're going to be monsters. All right, uh, let me take a, one more phone call here. Uh, let me take it from uh, Kevin, uh, and then we're going to go to a break. We'll get uh, some more calls on the air after that break. Uh, Kevin from New Haven. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, Colin. It's good to, good to talk to you. Thanks for calling. I just wanted to bring up uh, an idea, and I, I have to say I'm still very hopeful uh, for the future. Um, you know, as I am, have been a little bit depressed over the past year, uh, but I am hopeful. And I sort of have this idea about um, uh, states' rights, and this is uh, kind of inspired by the fact that our coastal cities and large cities like New York and France and San Francisco have agreed to uh, still stay more or less within the confines of the Paris Climate Accords, despite what the federal government is doing. And I wonder if it wouldn't be in the Democrats' uh, best interest or, or better interest to bring back the idea of uh, allowing uh, states more of their own freedoms to make decisions about issues like climate change and immigration uh, as a, a better check on the uh, the federal government and to kind of re return to that idea, which was really, uh, you know, something that the founding fathers were uh, pretty adamant about as using states as their own uh, experiments for uh, law and, uh, and order. Right. Kevin, it's a great point. Um, I can tell that you're uh, a very smart person, so you know that one of the reasons the founding fathers made that argument, because there were a lot of things that they wanted to do that we wouldn't necessarily approve of now. And states' rights are a double-edged sword, obviously. And even now, they're a double-edged sword. Because of states' rights, we have, in fact, turned our republic into a series of 50 different gas stations where you go to the one that has the cheapest price. So there is a little bit of a race to the bottom that's going on through states' rights. Like, who can cut education? Uh, who can cut uh, the safety net uh, enough so that taxes will go down, so you can attract people to move there? You can attract businesses to move there by lowering your environmental regulations. You know, I mean, the, the problem with, say, Florida 
as we know from Governor Scott's visit to Connecticut, is, yes, it has a lot of coastal cities on it, but it also is trying to attract business by saying, we don't have so many regulations. We're not going to get in your way. You can do what you need to do. You can run your business the way you need to run it. Uh, We're not going to worry about protecting workers. Uh, We're not going to worry about unions. And we're not going to worry about environmental regulations. So you're going to be able to do the things that you need to do to run your business. And that's the problem with states' rights. You're absolutely right that it also makes states incubators for innovation and improvement, and, and cities too. I mean, yes, there are green movements going on in individual cities, green movements going on in individual states. There are more progressive immigration policies in those states. But you have to balance that off against the opposite of that. Uh, and it's always going to be the problem with states' rights is that race to the bottom. Let's see who can be the next Mississippi. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back after this. Back at it again. Here go again. With your shenanigans. Break closed doors just to get ten. Fit ten. But you can't sit ten. All right. The producer, I, I, I should say, usually Kion Wolf does the thank yous at this point. She's off today. So the producer of the show is Betsy Kaplan. On the board to take the place of Kion Wolf is uh, Jonathan McPants. Zandra Ellen, I've already mentioned her. She's our uh, excellent intern. She's screening the calls today. And that's a hard job to do on a day when we're so reliant uh, on calls. And uh, let's see. It's like everybody I have to thank today. I don't know. Anybody else contributed in some major way? Uh, I'm sure there were other people who did. And thank you. Oh, Jean. Yes, Gina Amatruda uh, came in and fixed a whole bunch of things about 30 seconds before we went on the air. Would it be a different show if Gene hadn't done that? Um, all right, so uh, we're going to go back to the phone calls, 860-275-7266. I do like to hear from people who don't feel the way that I do. I think Anthony uh, might be one of those people. Hi, Anthony. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, one of the reasons why I tune into your show is that it's really refreshing to get a, a different perspective on things. Um, but I have to say that, you know, um, in your in your kind of monologue and, and, and going through some things, it's just, I, I think it, it would be helpful if you addressed, you know, kind of the outlook as far as like, uh, you know, if, when Obama was in power, you know, things like, you know, mentioned things like ruling, like, in, you know, executive order and things like that. And, you know, use the comparisons like oligarchy and things like that. I mean, I, the same argument can be made from the other side. Um, and it would just be interesting to hear, um, you know, that side as well. Um, and I think NPR would be better served. I think if they had that other perspective on there as well, I think it would be served, you know, educationally, um, you know, intellectually, and also monetarily. Because, I mean, I, I don't, you know, as someone that listens to the show, just to get a diff- another perspective, mm-hmm. I, I, I understand that, um, you know, it's not, you know, your, your show... It does. It does deliver, you know, new ideas and things like that. And it's not, you know, the same as like, you know, a, a Sean. It's not the same as a Sean Hannity, where it's just a constant banging the drum of the same type of rhetoric repeated over and over again. But it's it'd be nice to hear the the, the comparisons between, you know, Obama's administration, a Bush administration, a Clinton administration. You know, I think we, you know, we're wading into this area where, um, you know, it, we should start to develop that that kind of dialogue, as opposed to, you know, we're the constant mantra of we're living in dangerous times and this is a very depressing time and things like that. You know, so the education, I think, can help people wake up from that kind of malaise if they're feeling that way, and I think it may help 
them to see things in a different perspective. Does that kind of make sense? What I'm yeah, saying? no, I think you're making a lot of sense. And first of all, that's one reason I brought up this article, and I really encourage people, including you, Anthony, I think you'd like it, to read this piece by Amanda Ripley. It's called Complicating the Narratives, the Whole Story by Amanda Ripley. Complicating the Narratives, the Whole Story. Um, and we'll post it up on our website at WNPR uh, slash Colin. And making very similar points to what you're, you're saying. And, you know, Anthony, I do agree with you that in the Obama administration, I always say that Obama was kind of like Macbeth. You know, with Macbeth, there's always this question about, was he always that person or did circumstances conspire to make him a person he never intended to be? And at a certain point, when I saw President Obama near the end of his term, I thought, wow, you're this constitutional scholar, but you're still presiding over this administration that's been incredibly hostile uh, uh, hostile towards the press, um, you know, an unprecedented number of prosecutions uh, of the press in the name of squ- uh, squelching leaks, um, presiding over extrajudicial executions, drone strikes, stuff like that, not able to close Guantanamo, uh, you know, and, and I would look at, o- at Obama and I would think, you know, I bet you that's not who you thought you were, but that's who you are right now. And, and in terms of even that oligarchy, yeah, I would say that even though I think he took over a sinking ship in 2009 and righted it. You know, he did it in a way that was focused on financial institutions as opposed to um, delivering a greater amount of direct relief to people. Uh, I think there's a very diff- big difference between the the uh, the vision of, say, of Bernie Sanders and the uh, uh, vision of President Obama. I've got a lot of respect for President Obama, and Lord knows he seems like an incredibly class act uh, compared to what I see now. Um I mean, he knew how to treat people. He knew how to talk to people. Uh, But that doesn't mean he was mistake-free. That doesn't mean he was pure. Uh, It doesn't mean anything like that. In my view, he he was a vast, vast, vast improvement over what came before and what we have now. But that doesn't mean he was without imperfections. Uh, All right. Let's see if we can find another uh, contrarian up here on the board. I think it might be Eric from Southington. Hi, Eric. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Colin, and thanks for taking my call. Sure. First, a couple of things. You and I are not that far apart in age, and I'm a 56-year-old African-American, and I can say unequivocally that I'd be I'd much rather live in 2018 than in 1968 or 1958. Oh, yeah, you bet. <laughs> That's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Second, I think um, those of like-minded people, including myself, we fell into complacency back in 2009. We thought that Obama was elected and everything was going to be hunky-dory, and what happened was we did we thought that the president was the only lever of government that mattered. And we discovered shortly thereafter when um, Democrats lost state legislatures at an unprecedented rate and the Congress flipped and we forgot about those institutions and realize and that was the beginning of to where we are now. Um, I think it behooves all of us, particularly millennials, to understand that. The president is not the be-all and end-all of government, and thinking that um, one man is going to be the savior, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, is a recipe for trouble if you don't buttress the other institutions, state legislatures, Congress, local and municipal governments. Um, we've set ourselves up for, for, for failure, and the complacency that we had even in 2016 um, led us to where we are now. Um, if democracy and what we believe in is worth having, then we have to uh, maintain a constant vigilance, and that's something that I think we've all forgotten. 
Um, great points, uh, Eric, uh, and I, uh, I'll just sort of let all those ideas sit, partly because I want to get one, one more caller on the air. We're running out of time, and so as usual, we've screwed the millennial. Uh, but Tim from Walcott, we do have a, a little bit of time to talk to you. So what's on your mind? Hey, Colin. I love the show, um, but I just kind of wanted to call with a, a little bit of an observation. Um, I'm the same age as your son, 28, and part of what I've noticed in the brief amount of time I've been watching politics is just sort of a uh, de-evolution into just the us versus them, the, the winning, if you will, outlook. Of it doesn't matter what the fight's about. What matters is winning. And a lot of the time I feel like people I talk to, because I make it a point to try to talk to everyone across the spectrum, uh, just to kind of get a feel for who I know and what people believe. Um, everyone just cares about winning. They don't even care about the outcome of that anymore. And I kind of think Trump is the personification, if you will, of that, being on both sides, not just Republican or Democrat. Um, I agree. Uh, I, once again, I really am. I mean, I'm, it sounds like I'm on her payroll, but if you could read uh, Amanda Ripley writing for the Solutions Journalism Network, uh, this piece is called Complicating the Narratives. Uh, it's it's aimed at journalists, but I mean, it's exactly what you're saying, Tim, which is that we get into that state of conflict and the conflict becomes more important than its constituent policy elements, right? U- ultimately, we just uh, drift and social media really reinforces this. We drift into this state of hypervigilance towards one another uh, and our suspicions of the other side exceed our interest in uh, any set of specific policies. Uh, and I think that's what Tim is talking about, too, that just sort of focus on winning. All right. So I'm going to try to live in a lead on an end on an uplifting note. Um, so I do have this 28 year old son. And so I was talking to him last night and I, I've said this thing to him now for 10 years. And I don't know. I'm guessing it's 10 years. And I don't know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like like all things that dads say to sons, I feel like maybe about 40% of it, you know, lands at all. Um, but I always tell him these three things. Anytime he's talking to me about a problem he's having, he was talking to me last night about a problem he's having, uh, an issue that's bothering him. I say these three things. I say courage, honesty, and generosity. If you approach your life and your problems with those three things guiding you, I mean, you know, you could pick three other Spencerian virtues, but those are the three that I've been saying to him all along. Have courage. Be honest. Be generous. If you do those things in your own life, you'll do so much better, you know, and, and you'll, you may expose yourself in, in some ways to parts of you that are vulnerable through courage, honesty, and generosity, but you'll grow that way too, and, and you'll be less vulnerable ultimately to things that worry you. So I don't know. I feel like I should leave you guys. You guys can be my 28-year-old son today. That's what I believe in anyway, that all this stuff, if we approach it with courage, honesty, generosity, we're going to do better. Lord, it's no like it ain't going to blow no more.